And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, as Sandy pointed out, I'm, I'm so glad that Anglicans don't confine Christmas to one day. Uh, we extend the celebration for 12 days uh, from December 25th to that Feast of Epiphany and uh, on January 6th because we need 12 days to celebrate that the light has come after the four weeks of Advent's waiting in darkness. For us at HTC this past Advent season, two of the Sundays of Advent uh, focused on Zechariah. In fact, um, Israel last week, uh, or two weeks ago, unpacked for us uh, the story of, of, uh, of, of Zechariah in this life-changing event that happened to him. Um, and today in Christmastide, uh, we turn to the life-changing episode in another figure in the Christmas story, which happens to be Simeon, a man who spent his entire life waiting for the extraordinary to happen. There are similarities between these two characters, uh, Zechariah and Simeon. Uh, both are described as being righteous and devout, uh, behaving well towards the people and careful to observe their religious duties. Uh, the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of both of these men. Uh, though, though we hear that uh, about the spirits leading in Simeon's life more than we hear about it in Zechariah's. Both are faithfully waiting for the salvation of Israel. We find them both in the temple, Zechariah going into the sanctuary just outside the Holy of Holies to meet God's visitor and angel, and Simeon already in the temple court where God's visitor, the Christ child, is going to meet him. But the way in which they receive what confronts them will leave Zechariah unable to bless the people because he could not believe he was going to be a parent in his old age. While Simeon pronounces a blessing on the two that he believes to be the parents of the promised child. Two totally different reactions. Now these, these two parents, Mary and Joseph, they had brought their child to the temple to be presented, to be dedicated, to undergo the rite of purification for themselves. And Luke reminds us, uh, as we heard in, in the gospel passage, that this was according to the law. Jesus' life was no exception to the law. This is what Paul reminds us of in Galatians chapter 4, when Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. So to fulfill the demands of the Levitical law, Jesus' parents would have paid the five shekels required to buy back the firstborn child from service to the Lord. You see, God had uh, required that all firstborn males be put in service to him 
since God had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians that first Passover when he spared the Hebrews' firstborn. The Levites took care of that requirement for the whole nation, dedicating their lives to God's service. But parents were responsible to acknowledge this by the payment of five shekels to buy back their child. God had been their redeemer, their deliverer from bondage, and a legal requirement like this would not allow them to forget that. And the law also required that a woman who gave birth to a male child was considered to be unclean for 40 days from the date of that birth. At the end of that period, she had to go to the temple for purification rites. She had to present a pigeon and a lamb for her purification. But if the couple was poor, as Joseph and Mary were, then two pigeons would suffice. You see, Jesus Christ, even at his birth, identified with the poor. All of this was done according to the law, all of it. The law that God had given Israel. And there was a very important reason for this law. Paul tells us that the law was a tutor to lead people to Christ. That the law was a servant to bring people to Jesus. The law, God's standards, was necessary to remind us of the sinful state in which we had been born and to lead us to the realization that we can't live up to God's standards. None of us can. That we cannot save ourselves. And now at this first Christmas, one who is born under the law in order does it to do what the law could not do, to save us from our sins. I mean, this is the point. The reason for the season is sin. I wanted that to be a bumper sticker, sticker right? The reason for, I'm tired of seeing the reason for the season of Jesus. No, Jesus is what the season's about. But the reason for the season is sin. If there is no sin, then there's no season. If there was no fall at the beginning of biblical history, there would be no incarnation, no need for it. And there would be no Christmas. In fact, the Christmas story really begins in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis. The Christian celebration of Christmas really begins with God's original expectation that we be absolutely perfect. Not just pretty good, perfect. Perfectly obedient to God. And then, you know the story, we blew it, right? We don't get to the third chapter of the Bible and we blow it in the garden because God's prohibition about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really just a pop quiz for those first human creatures. The only question was this, who is in charge here? Our first parents answered with their actions that we're in charge. It was an outright rebellion against the creator and the beginning of our self-centered idolatry. And Paul tells us in Romans 3 that when it comes to that pop quiz, we all flunk the test, all of us. 
God doesn't grade on a curve. You either get an A or you get an F. And we all get an F. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's not a case of how good you can be to get into heaven. That's not what the Bible is all about. It's a case of being perfectly good or being a sinner. And we're all in the latter category. You see, if you get this part of the story wrong, then you sabotage the Christian celebration of Christmas. Because Christmas is just one chapter in the biblical story. It's a story based on the premise that we are punished, we are damned for making one mistake because rebellion against an infinite God results in an infinite separation from God. But then comes the extraordinary act of God, the almighty story weaver. It's hinted at in Genesis 3.15, right there at the beginning, when God told Eve that her seed would crush the serpent's head. The divine author of this story devised a plot whereby even though we're damned sinners, God does not stop loving us, but demonstrates his love for us even, even more and still manages to get perfection out of us or to get perfection into us by his spirit. But to do this, the father has to introduce a new character in the story. His son comes in the flesh, the incarnate Jesus Christ, who comes to us born of the second Eve, named Mary, the very one who is presenting her child to Simeon in the temple. So if you don't take Genesis 3 seriously, if the Garden of Eden story is just a nice fable about human beings who... Uh, who can still earn their place into heaven by living just a good life, giving some money to worthwhile charities, helping out in the church from time to time. If that's all that this is about, then we really don't need Jesus, and we don't need Christmas. And the best reason that I could give you for being here today is because it's a good meditative way to relieve a lot of stress from this season of the year. If all that God expects of us is that we be pretty good folks, then the most of us, then the most we need Jesus for is an example of what it means to be a pretty good Joe. But we certainly don't need a Savior who was born this day in the city of Bethlehem. From the Christian perspective, Christmas is only a season of extraordinary joy to the extent that we realize how sinful we are and how deeply we need redemption. Otherwise, the joy of the season is mere tinsel and glitter. Christmas would just be a holiday, not a holy day. It would just be an ordinary annual event unless we understand how deeply we're in the mire. But once we admit the humiliating fact that we're drowning in sin, and we can't save ourselves, then Christmas becomes this extraordinary event. Just the kind that Simeon was waiting for. A redemption from sin that only the Creator could accomplish. And so after waiting all these years 
Luke tells us that Simeon, looking for the consolation of Israel, realizing what kind of situation they're in, receives the Christ child into his arms. I think it's so wonderfully captured in this, this, this painting. This is by a man named Deciani from Wheaton. Uh, his uh, son was one of my students when I taught at Wheaton. And um, I got to know some of his paintings. And you can just see him holding this child for whom he's been waiting. It's a much different response from Zechariah's who couldn't bring himself to receive the word of the angel, but Simeon's receptiveness has earned him the a title in the Christian tradition, Theodoko, God-receiver. This is the God-receiver. And notice the way in which this God-receiver accepted the revelation of Christ into his life. His response is one of the most beautiful hymns in the New Testament, the Nunc Dimittis. Since the 5th century, this has been recited uh, in the hours of the liturgy um, at Compline, the last uh, time that the monks gather to pray, the completion of the day. He sings it in response to what the Holy Spirit revealed to him. He has seen the salvation of God's people. In fact, he has held salvation in his arms. This baby, this baby is the one who fulfills the promise that God gave in Genesis 3, that Eve's seed will crush the serpent's head. The light now is shown. Revelation has come to Simeon in the temple court. The Holy One comes into this holy place to give light to the Gentiles and as the glory of Israel. And Luke says, the one who had not seen death, Simeon, now sees the consolation of Israel. This event was what had been predicted. It had been predicted. The nations would come in the last days to the house of the Lord to be taught in his ways. This was predicted in Isaiah. It was predicted in Micah. And now in this house, this little baby is given the name Jesus, which means Savior of his people. He is named and proclaimed to be salvation, to be light, the light, to be glory. The proudest boast of the temple theologians had been that the glory of God dwells in the sanctuary. And now Simeon proclaims that Jesus Christ is the glory of God's people here in this temple. The glory of God is in the temple, but it's not in the building. It's in this child. Simeon has been waiting for this his whole life. He's been steeped in prophetic literature. He's the one who's been reading his Bible and knows it so well that he knew this would happen. And it's kind of like the first grader, you know, uh, whose school building caught on fire one day. And he went home, proudly told his parents, I knew it would happen. We've been practicing for this for a long time. I mean, that's Simeon. Simeon. Simeon has been waiting for the extraordinary to happen. He's been rehearsing this in Scripture his whole life. And wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if we daily read our Bibles in the same way, expecting the extraordinary to happen, even if we have to wait a lifetime for it? On the contrary, I, I think a lot of people just read the Bible without much expectation 
Maybe like we would read a literary classic or a novel. What if in our daily devotional life, we read scripture with this in mind? Is today the day, Lord, when I will see your power, your glory, your promises to me fulfilled? I suspect that each day as Simeon read Isaiah, as Simeon read Mike, as, as he read the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, he must have thought, is this the day, Lord, when you will do what you said in your word? And then sure enough, today was the day. Now, just as Mary had said, let it be done to me as your handmaid, as you will, Simeon says, all right, let me depart in peace. He speaks as one who is servant of a master, seeking release from this long task, this, uh, from a long night's watch. Simeon can depart in peace because the Prince of Peace has come. Not because Simeon finished his task, but because God has now completed his word. God has now fulfilled his promise. During my days at Princeton, um, I earned part of our living by being a closing guard in a depart at a department store. In other words, um, I was the last one out at night. But before I could lock up and leave, I had to wait uh, for the nightly run of the mail truck so that the driver could pick up the one or two bags of receipts and the mail that was going out that day from this store and take it all to Newark, the Newark office. Sometimes he'd be on time. That is, sometimes he would get there at 10 p.m., a half an hour after the store closed, when I was supposed to get off. But occasionally, for various reasons, um, he wouldn't come until much later. I don't know what he was doing. But um, sometimes he wouldn't get there until 11 or 11.30. And I couldn't leave until he came. But when he had come, I could leave in peace knowing that for which I had been waiting was now fulfilled. In a similar manner, you see, Simeon can depart this life in peace, not because it's time to punch out on the, on the clock, but because the one for whom he has spent his entire life waiting has finally come. But before he departs in peace in Luke's gospel, he's one more word. It's a word of prophecy, and it's directed at the parents of this child. It's not a welcome word, necessarily. In fact, it's not the kind of word that you and I would ordinarily like to hear someone say at this time of year. There's a dark side to the Christmas story that we don't like to talk about. In fact, if you observe the liturgical calendar, we just observed that part of that dark side on the 28th when we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Innocents, the children that gave their lives in Bethlehem so that the Savior could come. The truth of Jesus Christ isn't always welcomed. Jesus will be followed by a shadow of hatred from Herod, who slaughtered the hundreds of innocent children in Bethlehem, responsible for it, to the crucifixion of the Messiah himself. To paraphrase Simeon's words, to the baby's parents. This child, whose birth we are joyfully celebrating at this time of festivity, 
and parting, this child will be the cause of many people's downfall, let alone the cause of many people's rise. I mean, imagine if we said that um, to the parents of a child that we were going to baptize here at Holy Trinity. It would be shocking. But he says, people will stumble over this one who comes to bring a sword, who divides even families over the issue of loyalty to him, who will even demand loyalty of his mother because his primary relationship to him will be the one of doing God's will, not one of biological association. Simeon knows that this one who came to help will be the one who will be rejected by those he came to help. It's not so much that this one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas makes people stumble and fall. It's that in their sinful state, they stumble and fall over this obstacle to their sinful attitudes and behaviors. This one who stands in the path of their self-centered march through life. The most memorable display of this truth that I, I, I stuck in my memory happened a few years ago. During this season, while I was waiting in line at a McDonald's, which was a rare occurrence for me in the beginning anyway, um, there were three men who came in, obviously on their lunch break from a job that they were on. And one man said, hey, did you hear about that $1 million prize in McDonald's Monopoly game that someone won and gave anonymously to St. Jude's Hospital for Children? And I had heard about this on the evening news just the night before. So I perked up when I overheard the question. And then one of the other two men immediately responded in, in a voice of disgust. He said, it's a scam. It's all a scam. Who would give away that much money? It's just a scam. Now, I wanted to turn around and tell that man that, as incredible as it may seem to him, um, there are more important things in life to some people than just having money. But I didn't want to get punched in the face at that particular point in time. But I did think how sad it is that at this time of year, when we celebrate the greatest gift that could ever have been given to us, at this time of year, how sad that this man had stumbled over the stone. In a sense, an act done in the spirit of a child whose birth we celebrate had indeed become a sign that was opposed by this man so that the inner thoughts of at least this one man had been revealed for what they were. And that's exactly what Simeon was getting at. Why do people find it so impossible to believe that there are folks who might be so affected by the meaning of this season, by this Christ child, that they just might give a million bucks out of gratitude and love. Like the rich young ruler, there are some who simply cannot believe that giving what you possess leads to freedom and joy in life. The reaction to Christ, even at Christmas, is often one of cool rejection and sometimes even active hostility. Why do we find it, why do we find the extraordinary so unbelievable? Why do we find it so incredible, the possibility that this is the day that God will redeem a loved one for whom we've been praying? 
Release a person from an addiction. Heal someone from an illness. Restore a relationship that has gone south. Or provide food and clothing when the cupboards and closets are bare. Why are we so often like Zechariah and can't believe than Simeon who receives the child in his arms? Why do we so often find it incredulous, the words of the angel, rather than receiving into our open arms the visitation of God in our lives or in someone else's? Fortunately, Luke doesn't end the story that way. He doesn't end on a negative note about our doubting and our pride-filled stumble over the child. Anna, a kind of female counterpart to Simeon, she's been waiting for the same thing to happen during her 84 years when she walks in on the presentation of this child. And Luke tells us that she began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So may we be the people who not only wait patiently for the extraordinarily saving acts of God to occur in our lives and in the lives of others, but we, may we be those who see it and proclaim it to all who are looking for the joy and the hope and the peace and the love that this child brings whose birth we celebrate, which is the most extraordinary gift that anyone could want this Christmas. What are you waiting for God to do in your life, in a loved one's life, in our world? If you're waiting for the extraordinary to happen, I have good news for you. News of great joy that will be for all people. Today a Savior has been born to you and his name is Christ the Lord and I declare that to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen